Welcome to this week's episode of the Pool Cleaner Hour. I'm your host, Tinker Buff, and for the next little bit, I'll be telling you a very macabre story that takes place on Halloween night, and we'll be sure to have you looking over your shoulder as you go out and celebrate. October 30th, 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley was brutally murdered bludgeoned with a golf club and then stabbed with that same stick after it broke. Her body was found not far from where she lived, in the exclusive gated community of Bellhaven, Connecticut. It would take nearly 25 years to nail down the suspect, Michael Skakel, a relative of the famed Kennedy family. Even though he was charged and given only 20 years, he was still set free after only 11, and today he walks free. In 2020, there was an attempt to reopen the case and retry Michael Skakel, but it was ultimately denied. The crime was over 45 years old. Many of the witnesses who gave the original testimonies had long since passed, and state attorney Richard Colangelo stated it would be impossible to prove anything without reasonable doubt. Michael claims he is innocent and was framed. However, John, Martha's brother, is certain they arrested the right man. Martha Moxley was born on August 30th, 1960. She grew up in Piedmont, California with her parents and older brother John. In 1974, the Moxley family moved to Bellhaven, an affluent neighborhood in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was considered a gated community and famous for how safe of an environment it was. It was considered a place that kids could walk around freely and adults were all trusting of their neighbors. Martha wasn't notably upset by the move. She was an outgoing person who was even voted best personality in high school, which is phenomenal for anybody to do if you remember your high school years, let alone uh, middle school. She had a natural gift, though, in making new friends and was a straight-A student and an active basketball player. However, on the night of October 30th in 1975, Martha had gone out to a holiday party with Michael Skakel and his brother Tommy and a few other teenagers. Her friendship with the Skakels were shaky at best. She had dire injuries about needing to cut ties with them, especially Michael. The two were nephews of Robert Kennedy, Tommy being 17 and Michael was 15 at this time. Two years prior in 1973, Ann Skakel, the two children's mother, died of brain cancer. The father rushed in, became a crippling alcoholic, and he regularly left the children alone with zero supervision and unlimited funds. Michael Skakel expressed that an even more intense level of chaos came to rule our household. As a result of his mother's death, Michael would also later state that chronic illness, alcoholism, and a repressive Catholic moral and sexual outlook consumed their house. The Skakels lived only 150 yards away from the Moxley house, and they were known even in this community as quite a party scene with no supervision and a constant stream of money from their rich family ties to do whatever they wanted to. So even knowing they were troubled, it was still a 15-year-old who would justifiably be interested in the exciting allure of a party in a gated community. According to Martha Moxley's diary, in which she made many references to Tom and Michael, she had very mixed feelings about some advances she'd begun to receive from Tom. 
Tom would repeatedly try to put his hands on her, and when she rejected his advantages, Michael would yell at her and accuse her of leading his brother on. <coughs> Neighbors knew the boys were out of control and had drinking problems and had notoriously explosive tempers. The night before Halloween was known to the gated community as Mischief Night, an evening when teens would roam the streets and play pranks, although nothing was ever more serious than TPing a house. So when Martha left, it was nothing out of the ordinary. It was nothing anybody was really that concerned about until uh, she never returned. And it was 4 a.m. and her mother was worried sick. She began calling everyone, trying to locate her daughter, but no one had any information. She continued calling into the next day until she went directly to the Skackles' house. When Michael answered the door, he told her he hadn't seen her at all. She knew something was wrong because at least one teenager she spoke with earlier that morning said she saw Martha with the Skackle boys last night. Around noon that same day on Halloween, Martha Moxley's friend Sheila made a nightmarish discovery. The 15-year-old was lying face down under a large pine tree at the very edge of the Moxley property. Her clothing was bloodstained. Her jeans and underwear were pulled down to her ankles. A six-iron golf club was found lying near the brutalized teen. Forensics would determine the all-too-obvious. This club had been used to strike Martha Moxley repeatedly, the impact becoming so forceful that the club broke into pieces. The killer had then picked up one of the pieces and stabbed the girl repeatedly, taking all but one of the pieces with them, the one they left behind, they left stuck in her neck. Investigators quickly discovered a matching club of the same brand name in the Scalkel home. They also found the broken club and the missing pieces, which would match those of the fragments left behind at the murder scene. The broken club also had the deceased Anne Skackle's name engraved on the handle. Detectives started questioning immediately. They started with Tom, the eldest brother. When questioned, Tom Skackle told the detectives he last saw Martha around 9.30 p.m. outside of his house. He told her goodbye and went inside where he watched a movie with the rich family's new live-in tutor, Kenneth Littleton. He then went to his room to work on a school report on Abraham Lincoln. His teachers, however, denied ever having given an ass this assignment. Tom was eventually given a lie detector test, which he passed, and no charges were ever brought against him. Though why he lied about the homework assignment was unclear, because surely there was actual homework he could have lied about doing and would have been verified, and why he specifically said it was a school report on Abraham Lincoln, we've never found out. It's also important to note at this time just how unreliable lie detectors have been determined to be by modern standards. The lie detector test, also known as a polygraph test, are often seen as 80 to 90% accurate, and that's only when used by the highest professional readers. Polygraphs measure the perspiration, the pulse rate, and other physiological factors of the person who is being tested in this way. Polygraph tests are accurate at measuring what they're supposed to be detecting, nervous excitement. When a person is undergoing a polygraph test, the administrator of the test will begin by asking two types of control questions. These are questions which the person is expected to answer truthfully and questions which the person is expected to answer with a lie. However, 
it's possible for people to make themselves react in a more excited way, even when answering the questions truthfully. If the control questions do not accurately show how the person reacts when lying, it is more difficult for the administrator to definitively decide whether or not the person is lying when answering relevant questions. So while the polygraph might be effective at measuring physiological factors associated with being nervous, that does not necessarily mean it will always be able to differentiate between a person lying and a person being able to tell the truth. Knowing that it is possible as well to manipulate the results of a polygraph test makes the polygraph as a lie detector fairly unreliable on its own. In addition, the polygraph is measuring the physiological factors that are associated not just with lying, but also with being nervous, which is obviously a common feeling one might experience when being interrogated. That is why in recent years police officers have strayed from fully relying on the polygraph tests as definitive proof of a person's innocence or guilt. Overall, it is important to consider the chance for error when examining the results of a polygraph test, but it is possible still to use it catching somebody in a lie. However, during all this time, a year has passed and no charges have been filed. Detectives seem to be spinning their wheels in place. The live-in tutor, Kenneth Littleton, he was investigated in the fall of 1976, so a full year later. He offered no relevant information, and even though he failed several lie detector tests, Littleton was never charged in connection with the case. When questioning Michael Skackle, he told detectives that he had left his house around 9.15pm and drove to his cousin's returning at around 11pm, and they knew with forensics that Martha had been murdered around 10pm. This would put Michael in the exact time frame. Unfathomably, though, he wasn't taken into custody, and the case went cold for 20 fucking years. 1991. Martha Moxley's case was reopened after a rumor about another Kennedy family member, William Smith Kennedy, possibly being involved in the murder. Even though this rumor was debunked, it brought the cold case back to headlines. Michael would finally be put in the hot seat, and this was inadvertently done by the idiot decision of his alcoholic father, Rushton. Rushton hired a private investigator to clear his family's name. His plans and hopes were that the P.I. would find information that would be framed around the former suspect, the tutor that had to put up with these guys, Kenneth Littleton. However, his plan completely backfired. There were two private investigators involved. There was Jim Murphy, a former FBI agent, and his assistant, Willis Krebs, a former NYPD lieutenant. When the two men interviewed Tom and Michael Skackle about their activities on the night of Moxley's murder, they both confessed to lying in 1975. Tom disclosed that it was not 9.30 p.m. when he last saw Martha outside his house, but it was closer to 10. He told police that he and Martha had given each other sexual handjobs. According to Krebs, Tom Skackle began to cry as he admitted this, but his lawyer cut him off before any more could be said. When interviewing Michael, he told the investigators that he did not go to bed when he arrived home from his cousin's house at around 11. He told them that instead he had actually climbed a tree outside of Martha Moxley's bedroom window and there he would jack off in the tree without her knowledge. And it was left at that. Seven years pass. It is now 1998. A one-man grand jury and an investigator were assigned to review the case of Martha Moxley. 
Upon examining the evidence, Judge George N. Thim ruled that there was enough to charge Michael Skalkel with her murder. Several of Michael's former classmates had been testifying that Skakel confessed the crime to them. Let's go back to 1978. Michael Skakel was conveniently moved to Maine, where he would attend the Elon School, which was a private institution which catered to children with mental health and substance abuse problems. This is when Michael blurted out during a group therapy session that he had killed Martha. However, Joe Ritchie, the school's owner, denied that such a confession had ever occurred, even though several others had declared otherwise and were actually there. Because Ritchie was the school owner, he wasn't even present during these moments. Ritchie would also refuse to testify on the grand jury proceeding, which makes his word immediately a little between Jack and shit, considering he wouldn't even testify and just said it didn't happen. One former schoolmate, Gregory Coleman, had even testified in his pretrial hearing in June 2000 that Skakel told him, I'm going to get away with murder because I am a Kennedy. Coleman added that he had made a comment that he was trying to make advances towards this girl and that this girl was not complying with those advances and thus he drove her skull in. In 1997, Michael Skakel made recordings with a ghostwriter, Richard Hoffman, for his autobiography, Dead Man Talking, A Kennedy Cousin Comes Clean. One recording played during the trial was particularly damning. Skakel said that the, on the night of Moxley's murder, he was drunk, had been smoking marijuana, and he was very sexually aroused. Michael explained that when Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, came to his door that morning of October 30th, he panicked. He said on the recording, I was still high and a little drunk from the night before. He reported having thought to himself, did they see me last night? Skalko claimed he was worried he'd been spotted by the Moxleys jacking off in their tree, but prosecutors argued that Skalko was clearly referring to being seen beating Moxley with the golf club. The counter-argument from Skakel's defense was that there was no physical evidence to convince the boy, and that he had an alibi for the time frame in which Moxley was murdered, even though the murder weapon was immediately found in his house with his family name on it. But it was now the year 2000, and Michael strolls into a frenzied courtroom. He looks at Dorothy in the face and says, I feel your pain, but you've got the wrong guy. It is now June 7th, 2002, just three years shy of 30 after the murder of Martha. The jury came back with a guilty verdict. Skakel was sentenced to only 20 years to life in prison, less years than the case had been neglected. One of the reasons for this light sentence is that he was convicted of murdering a minor while he was also a minor. So he was treated as a 15 year old, even though he was now 39. Michael would then give a bullshit 10 minute statement full of biblical references, proclaiming his innocence and his faith in God. Now why he was given a 10 minute audience after being convicted can only be chalked up to more of his rich privilege, but he was taken away crying, blubbering and heading to prison. But as I opened up with, this was not the end. The nightmare isn't over. For 11 years, the Skakel family and lawyers attempt retrials and consistently get denied 
in July 2016, Michael's cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is now the famous anti-vaxxer and general political nut job who's trying to run for president, releases a book titled Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. The book explores what Robert says was a botched police investigation as well as courtroom misconduct and concocts alternate theories of who killed the girls. It claims to have definitely solved the murder, identifying two random Bronx teenagers. Nothing obviously comes of that. Within a few months, the money and power of Robert stepping in forces the case to be reopened once more. The Connecticut Supreme Court begins a multi-year back and forth examining how the original trial went down. On June 7th of 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court denies the prosecutor's attempts to revive Mr. Skakel's conviction. So unless they wanted to try and set up a new trial altogether with more evidence lost and either even more witnesses either dead or unreachable, they had to say they had no case to fight. So in a sickening twist of this knife, Michael would be set free on October 30th, 2020, 45 years to the exact day that Martha Moxley was murdered. Dorothy holds firm that she knows he's guilty, but she states she'll never forget the day he was found guilty in court. His conviction was the justice that she needed to feel, and she is willing to move past this. She also understands that Michael's wealthy connections are the reason he walks free today. For in an interview, she states, The state of Connecticut had a very, very good case, and we absolutely know who killed Martha. If Michael Skakel came from a poor family, this would have been over. But, become the, but because he comes from a family of means, they've stretched this out over all these years. Reporter Lynn Levitt, now deceased, was interviewed in 2003 with a CBS coverage special. He spent more than 30 years investigating the night of Martha's death. He was quoted as saying, Michael and Martha are in the front seat of the Skakel car. Tommy comes and joins them, so the three of them are sitting in the front seat. Martha's in the middle between Tommy and Michael. They're listening to music. They were in the Lincoln around 9.30 p.m. when two others, when the two Skakel brothers said they needed to use the car so they could drive to their cousin Jimmy Terrain to his house to watch the U.S. premiere of Honey Python's Flying Circus. Michael told police he left with his brothers and cousin while Martha and her friends stayed behind with Tommy. What goes on between Martha and Tommy is this sort of playful pushing back and forth with some mild overtones. However, at one point, Tommy pushes Martha down and falls on top of her. And the friends are so embarrassed that they leave and go home, leaving Martha with Tommy. And Martha would never go home. Steve Carroll was among the first investigators from the Greenwich Department to walk up to Martha's body. When Carroll spoke with 48 Hours in 2000, he was still shaken by what he had seen. We didn't even know what color hair she had because it was all blood red. And all the blows or damage, they were all to her head. And then we could see a path that she had been dragged down in the high grass, down to her final resting place, where it would be under the pine tree. However, Michael walks free, as can be today, even though he had fully confessed to the murder and the murder weapon was found in his house. But uh, maybe, maybe that's wrong, what do you think? Do you think uh, this is a case of a murderer being set free by ludicrously wealthy family members? Or was this what 
Robert Kennedy hypothesized, and the work of some unnamed hoodlums from the Bronx who left behind zero evidence and have never ever been found? Or was it the living tutor who was cursed with having to teach two jackass trust fund alcoholics how to read? I don't know. Let me know, guys. Let me know what you think. Because to me, it's very clear. All right. That's, uh, that's it for this episode. So stay safe when you're out there uh, celebrating this Halloween. And while you're at it, just give Martha a quick thought and let her, let her never be forgotten. All right. I'll see you guys next Monday.